I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Farhat Popal. Farhat is the Immigrant Affairs Manager for the City of San Diego, where she serves as the liaison between the city and the immigrant and refugee communities. Previously, she served at the State Department and the Office of the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. Farhat, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Farhat, how did we get to this moment? What do you see as the key driving factors of the United States' failure in Afghanistan? Grant, I think there are sort of four key pieces to this. The first is the U.S.-Taliban deal. That deal excluded the Afghan government, and it didn't take their interests into consideration. And first and foremost, it, it was a withdrawal agreement, not a peace agreement or anything else. The second piece of this is our impatience with the Doha peace process. We all know that peace processes take time, especially after a 20 plus year conflict. And we were in such a rush to leave that we sacrificed any meaningful progress in those peace talks. The third piece of this was the unconditional withdrawal announcements. This was essentially a signal to the Taliban that all they needed to do was was waited out. It removed any incentive to negotiate with the Afghan government, and it eliminated most of the leverage that the U.S. had to motivate Taliban behavior. And the last piece has been the execution of the withdrawal, the the lack of coordination with the Afghan government and the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces. I think all of us have seen just the horror of the last two weeks and how all of this has happened so quickly. And you know, I, I think it's really just um, a continuation of the events of the last year and a half. It has shown a willingness to sacrifice 38 million people to the Taliban who have shown us that they have not changed. They're still connected to Al-Qaeda for our own intelligence community. And that there's been a willingness to have Afghanistan be the caveat when we talk about our ideals of democracy, human rights, women's rights, and, and peace. The U.S. government has essentially helped hand the entire country over to a terrorist organization. I'm curious what you think is the story or narrative that the U.S. media is getting wrong or not reporting when it comes to Afghanistan. I'm really dismayed at the messaging around the end to America's longest war or references to the forever war because it completely removes Afghans from the picture as if they're not the people who have suffered the most. They're not the ones who have been a part of all of this for for the last 20 years. It's as if Afghanistan's history only extends back 20 years. And I think that our media can do significantly better. We can acknowledge Afghan victims of war, not just American lives. And we need to stop perpetuating this narrative that Afghan lives don't matter which is exactly what the media is doing when they frame things that way, whether it's unintentional or not. I think what the media can do is to push back on some of the narratives of this administration that blame the current situation entirely on the Afghan government and the security forces. We created the environment for where Afghanistan is today. We paved the way for the Taliban. We removed all necessary support. And we bear quite a bit of responsibility that the administration doesn't want to acknowledge and that the media doesn't want to write about because it's hard to stomach morally, or at least that's what it seems like to me. And 
I think that we should hold this administration to account in the same way that we hold other administrations to account, whether that's through the media or otherwise. What's the current situation on the ground in Kabul and what can America do now that we've fully withdrawn troops to evacuate those that need it? Right now, Afghans are scared. From what we're hearing, the Taliban are doing door-to-door searches to look for people who work with the U.S. government, the international community, the Afghan government, the security forces, and those who simply oppose their ideology. This includes journalists, activists, teachers. Women are being told to stay home. Girls are being told their education stops at the sixth grade. An entire country at this point is preparing to live under a terrorist regime. On top of that, the economy is collapsing. Major banks are still closed. ATMs have run out of money. People have lost their jobs and are not being paid. Before all of this started, Afghanistan was already facing a humanitarian catastrophe because of severe drought and and COVID-19. And this has compounded that by orders of magnitude. I know last week, the WHO said that they would run out of medical supplies at some point this week. And I think the U.S. and the international community right now can focus on ensuring humanitarian assistance gets through to Afghans by any means possible. We've heard a lot about people who are attempting to exit the country via the airport in Kabul, but we've we've been hearing very little about the rest of the country. So I'm curious if, if you have a sense for what the situation is like outside of the capital um, and should American support look different in other parts of the country? People in the rest of the country have been trying desperately to, to get to Kabul in hopes of getting on an evacuation flight, especially as regional airports have closed down. But now that that's not an option, they're trying to figure out essentially how to stay safe and other potential ways of getting to another country, for example, through land borders. The U.S. government can and should work with regional countries and third-party governments to allow Afghan refugees in, to remove visa barriers, and to provide concrete assistance to ensure Afghans have access to very much-needed services. Whether they choose to remain in those countries or are waiting on U.S. visa processing or otherwise, these are people who are incredibly vulnerable right now and have lost everything. And I think that the U.S. government can and should continue to do what it can to protect this population. We should also remember that there are a significant number of American citizens who are still stuck in Afghanistan and green card holders. And and the U.S. government has a responsibility to do everything it can to get them out as well. What are those barriers that are preventing people from evacuating? Are there administrative and bureaucratic barriers? Are there economic barriers? What are those things that are keeping people from evacuating? I think part of it is definitely economic, but part of it is simply logistical. A lot of the Central Asian countries to the north of Afghanistan have made it very hard for Afghans to to get visas. And the Afghan passport historically has been a very weak one in the sense that it has not allowed Afghans to get to many other countries, again, even before all of this started happening. So those barriers have been in existence for a while and now have become even more acute for a lot of people. Most countries are not allowing Afghans in without prior visas, and getting a visa is incredibly challenging right now. For those that are going to have to stay in the country for whom evacuation or escape are not an option, 
what can the United States and our allies be doing to help secure some of the gains we have made over the last 20 years? We need to ensure that Afghans and Afghanistan are not forgotten. And we need to provide not only humanitarian assistance, but also support to grassroots organizations on the ground that are trying to do what they can to help Afghans in need. And we'll be doing so much more of that in the coming weeks, months, and years. To be honest with you, there are no more gains left to secure. At this point, it's about survival, not only for those who worked with us or the international community the last 20 years, but for each and every Afghan who might be a perceived risk to the Taliban in any way. All of those gains have essentially been wiped out in the last two weeks. You know, there's been some discussion about using economic sanctions against Taliban leaders, but it seems to me like that is sort of a challenging proposition uh, and may not have the targeted impact that we would like and would actually have worse consequences for citizens of Afghanistan more than leadership. And so I'm curious if you think there are economic tools we should be using and what your take on the sanctions discussion is. Well, I should start by saying that I am not an expert on this, and there are much smarter people out there who are. But what I will say is that we need to be very careful about how we use any economic tools and have a clear understanding of who exactly it will impact and how. We know that if those economic tools are not carefully targeted or used, that civilian populations end up suffering the most. And that is the last thing we should be doing right now. We need to do everything we can to prevent any more suffering on the Afghan civilian population. One of the areas that there has been a discussion about is recognition diplomatically. There's a group out there headed up by Amrola Sala, the first vice president of the Afghan Republic. There's some members of Congress who are trying to get the president to recognize that as the legitimate government. What do you think is the best for the United States for the Afghan people? Is it working with the republic? Is it working with whatever this nascent government of the Taliban is uh, in order to secure safety for those on the ground? International recognition is a hard one. And I know that there are many of us who want to take our cues directly from the Afghan people and what they want. What we know right now is that the Afghan people didn't choose the Taliban. They want peace and security, but not at the expense of their rights, their freedoms, and their opportunities. We also know that the Taliban very much wants international recognition, and there are countries like China who are willing to grant it. What I don't want to happen is for the issue of recognition to impact the humanitarian situation on the ground to the detriment of Afghans who are trying to stay alive. And I can see that happening if we don't treat this topic very carefully in the same way that we are thinking potentially about economic tools. The Taliban is obviously not the only player on the ground that is making life hard for citizens. And there's been some reports that the U.S. has been working with the Taliban to push back against the ISIS affiliate on the ground. I'm curious how you, how you think about that and what are sort of appropriate trade-offs that the U.S. should make to prevent even worse actors from causing pain and destruction? I would push back a little bit against that framing and reporting because it implies that the Taliban aren't that bad. 
compared to other actors. And at this point, U.S. interests only include preventing attacks on U.S. soil versus any consideration of what any bad actor does to the Afghan population. To Afghans, terror is terror, no matter who is perpetuating it. And I think we, as the United States, should remember that when talking about Afghanistan, not to not to sound cheesy, but there is no Afghanistan without Afghans. The various actors who are making life miserable for, for the Afghan population, again, from our standpoint, yes, there is a difference between the Taliban and ISIS and other bad actors, of which there are many. But I would urge us to continue to center Afghans in all of this and how they're experiencing that terror on the ground. Last week, we were having a conversation about corruption. And one of the things our guests brought up was how so much of the U.S. aid money, especially the money we spent to the military, actually ended up in the hands of bad actors. When you talk about supporting on the ground work in Afghanistan, how can we make sure that the money that we are, are spending goes to the people who need it the most and does the most good for those people, especially in a time that's so turbulent like right now? I think that's that's a great question and it's going to be difficult. However, even over the course of the last 20 years, and especially over the last 20 years, actually, there have been so many grassroots Afghan civil society-led organizations that have made real impacts on the ground. And I think the most important thing we can do is take our cue from those organizations and those Afghans who will inevitably continue to try to do this work to the best of their ability while also trying to stay safe. That doesn't mean that we need to push millions of dollars into small organizations, but I think it means that we can be smart about how we do this and about who we're talking to and who we're listening to and who we're supporting. I think the lack of that or the not doing enough of that over the last 20 years contributed to a situation where so much money was going to large development contractors that were subcontracting over and over and over again, and the money wasn't actually getting to the people on the ground. Maybe a different way of approaching some of the a similar question. Is there, I'm curious what work you've seen happening on the ground as of late that maybe gives you a little bit of hope? One very particular Twitter account that has propped up over the last week and a half has been an account, an anonymous one, that various Afghan women have put together. And it's essentially an attempt to continue to use their voice to highlight what's happening on the ground for Afghan women, but also broadly in Afghan society. And to make sure that they're using every opportunity they can to educate the world about what's happening and fight for their rights in ways that they can that try to keep them as safe as possible. And removing some of these, these individual accounts and names that put targets on their back, which is heart-wrenching, but also finding a very ingenious way to continue to get 
the word out there and continue to have a voice, that has been something that has given me hope that Afghan women in particular are not going to give up. They're going to continue to fight for their rights and their opportunities that they know they deserve. And while they shouldn't have to be in that position, I have so much respect and admiration for their courage and their bravery in continuing to speak up. So let's shift gears a little bit. How can America do right by Afghans once they have gotten into the United States? We must welcome Afghan refugees with dignity and respect and with compassion for the trauma that they've experienced on their journeys, which is immense. We can donate, we can volunteer, we can be vocal in our local communities and lead with empathy, be those role models in our communities. And we can continue to promote diversity and inclusion and the America that we all want to see and we all want to live in for these people. We can also make it easier for Afghans to to integrate by removing unnecessary barriers and ensuring access to services and benefits. So for example, a large portion of refugees will be here on humanitarian parole, which doesn't allow for benefits. And given the circumstances under which they had to flee Afghanistan and upon arrival here, they should have the same access to benefits that populations like special immigrant visa holders have. So there's a lot that we can each do, both individually in our own communities and also broadly as a country, to make sure that Afghan refugees are are welcomed and supported in every way possible. What are some of the ways that individuals who care about the lives of Afghan refugees, what are the things that we could be doing in the coming days, weeks, and months to make life a little bit better? Well, we can look up our local refugee resettlement agencies and ask what they might need. That could be specific in-kind donations. It could be volunteer time. It could be even help finding temporary or permanent housing for refugees, which is a major issue in states like California, for example, and a whole lot of other things. You know, if, if you're in an area that has a large African-American community, for example, in California, Virginia, or New York, you can look up local diaspora organizations that may need similar support to be able to serve this population in the way that they need. You can also make sure that Afghan refugees aren't forgotten after this initial wave of support and services. You know, they will continue to need support to integrate into their new lives six months from now, a year from now, two years down the line. And we need to be consistent in our support in whatever way we are each able. What's America's role in ensuring humane treatment of Afghan refugees in third-party countries? I I think specifically of LGBTQ Afghans who are now in Qatar, where homosexuality is illegal. I think we have a a diplomatic and humanitarian role to play. We need to use whatever leverage we have to ensure humane treatment, especially because many refugees are in those third-party countries waiting on pending SIV applications or P1 or P2 processing. We can and should provide funding directly in support of these populations and do what we can to monitor human rights conditions. Afghan refugees in these countries are at immense risk of exploitation in in a lot of different ways. And it is still on us to promote their safety, whether they are formally in the United States at this point or not. Unfortunately, we've already seen some anti-Afghan sentiment that's circulating. 
particularly in, in right-wing media sources. How can the media, how can we as individuals push back against that narrative? We can reinforce the message that these Afghans are our allies. They're our friends. They are people who have been at immense risk because they have worked toward progress in Afghanistan. And they're here because their lives were in immediate danger because of that work. I think people forget that no one wants to leave their home, their profession, their country, everything that is familiar to them, and start all over again in a brand new place. But people do so because they're seeking refuge. That's what a refugee is. They're trying to stay alive for themselves and and for their families. And we can share that message and gently guide people when we hear anti-Afghan or any anti-immigrant, anti-refugee, anti-asylee sentiment wherever we are. And I think it takes each and every one of us having the courage to speak up in moments like that when we hear some of these messages whether it's from family members, friends, strangers, colleagues, it it could be anybody, but we all need to have that courage to stand up and to speak up again, not only for Afghans, but for our immigrant refugee and asylum community more broadly, because that is what America is and what America should be. How do you think about integration for refugees? The hope for many refugees, including Afghans, is to go home at some point to a home that is safe and free. How do you think about both keeping alive that hope that Afghanistan will soon be a place that they can return to while also settling them in the United States, especially given some of the pushback we've been seeing? I think that's a very important question. The part of it focused on keeping the hope alive for Afghans. I think that's something that Afghans themselves will need to grapple with. But the role that we have to play as the United States and as Americans is to help them feel as comfortable and as integrated as they can be in their new home for however long they choose to be here. So in my view, And I'm a little biased because I am a first-generation immigrant, but sort of 1.5 because I came here when I was young and mostly grew up here. And I think about integration as not just spanning the first generation of immigrants and refugees, but really first and second generations, because so much of that experience gets translated to to the second generation, whether that's intergenerational trauma or the financial and sort of economic impacts of having to start over from scratch in in a new place and trying to build generational wealth at some point, you know, all of those things become very important and very integral to an immigrant family's full integration not just economic or social or civic, but the full spectrum of what integration into a new country and and a new life looks like. My hope would be that we focus on that type of integration without necessarily worrying too much about whether this is a temporary stay or a long-term stay. Because for many, and I can speak to this from, from my own parents' generation who moved here and, you know, 
some of them in the 1980s. I came here in, in the early 1990s. I think for the last generation of Afghan refugees that fled the Soviet war, it was the same sort of question. How long will we be here? Will we be able to go back? What does building a life in America look like? Those are both very specific questions that immigrants grapple with from a practical standpoint, but they also grapple with it from an emotional standpoint. And the best thing that we can do in supporting people, from my perspective, is making sure that we show them compassion in this moment, in this immediate term, while also doing everything we can to provide what they need for the medium to long term. I think we should assume that these Afghan refugees will be here for the long term. And we should provide the support that they need as such. If Afghanistan becomes safe enough for people to go back, then they will. But at least during their stay here, they will have everything they need to support themselves, their families, and to be a part of the mosaic of, of America. How do you think the needs of Afghan refugees is going to look distinct from other refugee communities or other groups? What might be unique about the type of support or, or resources that the Afghan community may need? Refugees who are fleeing war and conflict generally have a lot in common. Um, but I think that in Afghanistan's circumstances, it's really the only country that has had direct U.S. involvement and engagement for a period of 20 years. And I think that the level of emotional trauma that results from how the withdrawal was executed and the circumstances under which so many Afghan refugees are now displaced, whether internally or externally, has a very deep stamp on it. And so I think that the mental health needs and emotional health needs are going to be just as important as the traditional medical needs and legal representation and social services and benefits that, that this population is, is going to need. A lot of these people lost everything that they worked for in the span of 10 days. And that leaves a very deep scar. So I think we would be remiss in not taking that into consideration, especially when we think about integration and we think about support services and the length of time that those services are, are going to be needed. This is, this is going to be a long-term need. And I hope that we are able to provide that support. Do you think that American leadership ought to be held accountable for the way this withdrawal was executed? And what would that accountability look like? I will probably spend more time answering the first part of that question versus the, the second part. I will say that the president ran for office on a platform of empathy and compassion. And today he has none for Afghans. He has shown that he does not care what happens to them as long as the U.S. is no longer involved in Afghanistan. He does not acknowledge any responsibility for where the country is today. And the 
misleading narratives that are being pushed that lay all blame on the Afghan government and the Afghan security forces is unattached to reality. And the reality is much more nuanced than that. I am also quite ashamed of the members of the Democratic Party who have stood behind that and have not pushed for more accountability. And especially from members and others within the party who have lambasted the Republican Party for its cruelty and humanity over the last four years, and yet fail to acknowledge the cruelty and inhumanity that we have perpetuated since the unconditional withdrawal announcement was made earlier this year. And the question that I want to ask is, do we only care about people when it's politically convenient? So all of that to say, yes, I think that there is responsibility and there should be an acknowledgement of that responsibility in a way that is more humble and more respectful and more compassionate than we have seen up until this point. How that's going to happen is a harder question because to this day, I don't know that I have seen an inkling of that in many places. And I would hate for politics to override moral courage and an understanding of what standing up for American principles and ideals actually looks like in practice. What do you hope for at this point in Afghanistan in a U.S. policy that supports human rights for Afghans wherever they may be? That's a great question. And to be honest with you, is one that I feel like I haven't had the privilege to think about yet. You know, I, I've definitely had some questions from other folks around, well, what might U.S. policy in the region look like? And what will foreign policy or national security policy look like in the region as a result of all of this? And to be honest with you, I have been so focused on how can we stem loss of life in this moment that I haven't thought as deeply about broader implications for U.S. policy. Because in this moment, I am so severely disappointed in U.S. policy that it's hard to come up with a more thoughtful and concrete answer to that question. That's totally understandable. The last question I want to hit on is, what have we lost in Afghanistan, culturally, economically, human-wise, over the last 20 years of failure, built on failure, built on failure? Over the last 20 years, we saw millions of Afghan girls go to school. We saw hundreds of thousands of young women attend universities. We saw Afghan civil society bloom in a way that 
many countries in that region of the world have not seen. The strength of Afghanistan's independent media, of its journalists, of its news broadcasters, of organizations in society that held the Afghan government to account and were not afraid to ask the hard questions. That's a large piece of what we lost. Those gains were immense. And I argue against a framing of Afghanistan that implies that it has always been a certain way, that there has never been progress, there has always been war, there has always been conflict. Because one, that's not true. And two, it is completely ignoring and disrespecting the tens of thousands of Afghans who have worked, whether with the U.S. government or the international community or not, for progress in every single way in Afghanistan. The number of Afghans that voted in presidential elections, in local elections, the number of people who ran for office, the number of civil servants and staff of Afghan government offices, of Afghan police officers and soldiers who fought bravely for their country. I mean, we forget that 66,000 Afghan soldiers and police died fighting for their country. That is not something that should be forgotten or taken for granted by anyone in all of this. This was two decades of Afghans working for progress, of Afghans working to build a country based on a constitutional order, based on democracy and civic engagement and human rights, women's rights, freedom of of speech and expression and opportunity. That's the Afghanistan that Afghans have fought for, for for 20 years. And this is why they don't want the Taliban. This is why the, the Taliban are completely foreign to most Afghans, because that isn't what they worked for for 20 years. It's like telling a bird that it's free and then suddenly putting a cage over it two minutes later. That is the overall view of what Afghans face right now and what has been lost in the last 20 years. And my question is for what? So that we can pull our troops out to end a so-called forever war without any acknowledgement or responsibility or perspective or empathy for what Afghans have worked for. It's as if every gain that has been made has only been as a result of American engagement. And that is not true in so many ways. That's what I would say we've lost. So on that note, let's turn to the issue that we're following this week. Both Zoe and I are going to try to endorse something that will uplift you during these difficult times. Zoe, what are you following this week? Thanks, Grant. And thank you, Farhat. So it's late summer. I have been trying to do some pleasure reading. And so like any good millennial, I am very much looking forward to the release of Sally Rooney's new novel, Beautiful World, Where Are You?, which is coming out this week. 
and looking forward to cracking it open. Great. This week, I'm endorsing Wingspan, which is a board game that focuses on birding. So over the course of the game, you build a bird sanctuary through gameplay that is both scientifically accurate and cards that are really beautiful. Uh, In the first two days of owning the game, I played it with my wife over a dozen times. You can find it online where board games are sold, and there's also an iOS app. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and Farhat at F Pop Lady. If you are a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. Normally, I'd put a joke in here to end the week's episode. But this week's episode is produced in honor of those men and women who fought for the last 20 years for human rights and democracy in Afghanistan and for the brave Afghans who continue to do so. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.